0: Hello, and welcome to the Lucky Strike edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. Anna Shemansky is here from Finland, or, or thereabouts. <laughs> yes, I am. Michigan, some, yes. some northern Michigan, place. Finland,
1: they're all
0: the same. Uh, Emily Peck oh. is here from the Huffington Post. Hello. Uh, Max Jacobs is in the studio to talk about sports ball. Hi, Max. Hello. Max Jacobs is normally on the other side of the glass, but he is going to join us later for a deep dive into the economics of baseball and whether the market is clearing and what's happening with all of these valuable players who don't seem to be able to get a job. That is coming up on Slate Plus. But before we get there, we have a jam-packed show full of labor... Fights. We have people going on strike, especially teachers and people who work for Marriott and people like that. We're going to talk about why that is happening. We are going to talk about Finland because Finland is fascinating and they kind of did. It's not exactly a universal basic income experiment, but it's kind of treated like that. We're going to see how that went and we're going to answer the eternal question of, is it a good thing when people give you money for free? It, tough Spoiler question. Spoiler alert. Spoiler <laughs> alert. It's actually a good thing. We are going to start, however, with your tax refund because there's a very good chance that you are trying to or hoping to get a tax refund right now. And maybe it's not as big as you might have received in the past. So, all of that is coming up on Slate Money
2: but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
0: So let's start with taxes, because it turns out that most Americans get Tax refunds It's this amazing thing that is built into the U.S. tax system, which people don't really talk very much about, which is that it's not just a way of paying your taxes as you go, which is a sensible thing to do, because otherwise you don't have the money to pay your taxes when they're due. But it's also a kind of hidden enforced savings mechanism that if you pay a little bit too much in withholding every paycheck. That's a great way of saving up a little money over the course of the year. And then around this time of year, when you file your taxes, you get a refund. You're like, ooh, free money. And it's your own money that you earn and you're overpaid in taxes. But it feels like a lovely surprise. And it's actually a way for people to feel better about the whole filing their taxes and paying their taxes thing. It's because paying your taxes and filing your taxes is associated with receiving a check. And that makes it feel great. And it encourages people to pay taxes. And Emily, I guess it's not really working out that way so much. Well, anymore this year, yeah,
3: I mean, this year there's there's essentially there's two things going on. First, there was a government shutdown, and that really affected the IRS, which is slower to get into tax season this year because of the timing. And then, of course, this is the first year under the new with the new tax law in effect. So, what's happening is the IRS is a little slower getting the refunds out and processing um, your refund, and some people are getting surprise tax bills, and it's not clear yet how many people. Um, the, one estimate I saw so far was um, four million fewer filers are getting refunds, and four million more are owing
1: money to the IRS. And I, and, and oh, go ahead. I yeah. just and I think it's important to note that it's not necessarily that people are paying higher taxes. It's that you have some people getting smaller refunds. And it really has to do with the changing of the withholding tables.
2: Right.
3: That's right. what I was right. going to say. It's um, it's actually Trump. I, I think it's a Trump self own because people's taxes were lower, but the withholding was changed. So your paycheck might have gone up a little bit. You might not have even noticed. But then what you do notice is that your refund went down and so it feels like you made less money or paid more taxes when you didn't
0: so this is the it's thing like which i don't a total understand. mess up yeah. by
3: this guy so, so the unbelievable
0: right the big question here really is why were the withholding tables changed like this to make people um you know feel worse about tax season. It's not an obvious thing to do, unless if you want to be a conspiracy theorist about it, unless what you actually wanted from the tax cut was a big boost to business. And as we know, the overwhelming majority of the tax cut was a corporate tax cut, not an individual tax cut. And if you wanted to help corporations, one way you help them is by Cutting corporate taxes. But another way you help them is by giving people invisible pay rises that they don't even realize, and they just wind up spending their slightly higher paychecks. And all of that money that they spend winds up going to corporations, and corporations wind up with higher revenues. And the corporations actually prefer it if you are paid that extra money rather than if it's hidden away in withholding.
2: Uh,
3: That's a wild <laughs> conspiracy I, honest, theory from Felix. Yeah. I mean, like, I like it. <laughs>
1: I mean, historically, the IRS has liked to essentially – they want you to get a bigger tax refund mainly because it is far easier to issue a refund check than it is to go after people who haven't paid their taxes.
0: And it's interest-free money for them. You're you're basically lending the money – the government money interest-free for the period that they're holding it for you.
1: I think there was also the intention to make – the system a little bit more effective and they had an like online system where you could better figure out what your withholding should be based on like it was more personalized essentially the problem is absolutely nobody used yeah. it so it wasn't I don't necessarily think it was a kind of grand scheme I appreciate the effort there <laughs> but I really do think that it's possible there was the intention to make people f- feel the tax cut more quickly. So maybe the idea was yeah. like, well, it, I don't want people to wait until tax season to realize that the tax cut potentially or you know help them. I want them to feel it almost immediately. Of course, the problem with that is that if you have a teeny tiny increase in your check, you're much less
0: likely and, to feel it. And less. I think, yeah, I, I to be honest, I don't really believe my own conspiracy <laughs> theory, but I do believe the um, cock-up theory, which is exactly this, which is someone in the White House, and you know, I'm going to go on the assumption here that people in the White House are not always enter- terribly smart. Um I mean, someone, obviously. Someone in the White House basically said, what we should do is make sure that people feel the effects of the tax cuts immediately so it would be a good idea to reduce the withholding because then you'll see the money in your paycheck immediately, which has a certain intuitive... Um, appeal to it. The problem is we know that doesn't work because anyone with a decade-long memory, which I'm assuming is no one in the White House, will remember that we did this in 2009. The payroll tax. The payroll mm-hmm. tax. Yes. And everyone stopped paying payroll taxes in 2009. Everyone basically got that 7.5% extra in their paycheck. And it was this huge boost to the economy. And it really worked as a fiscal stimulus. And absolutely no one noticed it.
3: Yeah, the numbers are just too small. Like, if you, your paycheck also, there's always weird fluctuations in your paycheck because of various. For various reasons, you just – you don't notice that people don't make that much money.
1: Especially because almost everyone has direct deposit. (laughs) You're not even looking at your pay stubs. that's also a
3: good point. And one other thing I would say for the the refunds going down in areas like where I live in Westchester, they capped the deduction on state and local taxes. And that is a huge – I mean not a problem because it's all kind of wealthy-ish upper income people that are hit by this. But it did really lower refunds for a lot of people and in some cases –
0: They capped the deduction or they just increased the standard deduction?
3: They ca- no, they, they did two things. capped. the deduction for state and local income taxes, I believe, to ten thousand dollars. That's it. So that's state income plus any property and property taxes, which where I live in
0: Westchester couldn't I mean, easily be over ten thousand dollars, right? now. Oh, there.
3: I get fifties. I mean, that's crazy. And um, and then they also doubled. The standard deduction to twenty four thousand dollars, but most of the people who are paying a, a big state and local tax bill are also paying a lot of mortgage interest on their homes. So Annals. they're gonna, they're gonna go over the twenty
1: four thousand, even uh, though it's okay. been
3: doubled. They're still gonna need to itemize because they're right over the um, the interest deduction plus the property tax.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think that part of this, and I think a big part of this is the withholding um, table issue, but a part of it is also changes in the tax code, where yeah. now people who have children, especially lower income people who have children, may see a bit more of a bump. Yeah, they
3: increased of, the um the – I'm sorry, Anna, you were about to just say this.
1: Yeah, yeah, they um, <laughs> <laughs> significantly increased the child tax credit, which I think we can all agree is a good thing. Uh, they also increased, I believe, the level at which you ha- you get hit with the alternative minimum tax. So that could also, you know, benefit. I mean,
0: as we as we know, as we knew when we were talking about this whole tax deal – um Number one, it was a corporate tax cut let 's never forget that and number two the in terms of insofar as it may changes to individuals no it was very hard to predict who would actually wind up paying more, who would wind up paying less, what the effects were, and that is now um playing out like people are slow people are discovering now um you know whether they're paying more or less, but also because of this whole withholding issue, they don't actually care. Whether they're paying more or less yeah. in taxes than they did last year, because what they actually care about is, do I get my two thousand dollar refund or not? It's
3: a, it's a really, it's an interesting psychological kind of case study in how money works. Like your paycheck going up by twenty five dollars a week versus a two thousand dollar bump at the end of the year. You could, you could have made more money getting this tax break but it it just does not matter because then you're not getting that check that you've like been waiting for all year that you like used to go on vacation or you know
0: yeah it's and what i love about this as well is that tax refunds arrive at exactly the same time as wall street bonuses they kind (laughs) of have the same psychological effect except for they're just much smaller Mm -hmm. yes
3: Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: So now we can talk about the government sending checks to people in the mail just like the tax refunds, only you do it regularly and the government is Finland and you only do it for 2,000 people. Um, And this is, if you guys remember the universal basic income discussion we had with Annie Lowry uh, a few months back, um, this is an actual universal basic income trial in Finland which was cut short and we... You know, because basically it was costing a lot of money, and now we are beginning to get the preliminary results.
1: It wasn't actually cut short.
0: It wasn't cut yeah, short. Yeah, you
1: know, I think like there there was like a question thing I went to where they said it, it wasn't actually cut short. It just wasn't extended. Yeah, it was. It, there's still another year
3: that is going.
1: Yeah.
0: So it is is it still going on? Yes. Oh, okay, so it's still because I thought it would
1: be. Canceled. Wait, I thought it was 2017-2018 done. I'm not. 100% sure about that, but I know they didn't cut it short. But they, okay. in
0: any case... But they're not extending it. They're just... not extending it. And one of the things that came out of the preliminary results, and we're not going to see the final results for a while, and the preliminary results are preliminary, and they are they are based on survey responses that only a third of the recipients actually bothered to respond. And you know, there's a bunch of asterisks here. But one of the things you really notice is that when the trial ended the recipients were like, oh shit, I'm getting 500 euros a month less than I was. That's a massive pay cut. This is really hard. And that um, we all, it's just basic human nature, we we all react much worse to losing 500 euros a month than we react to gaining 500 euros a month. If you give someone an extra 500 euros a month for a couple of years like they did and then take that 500 euros a month away from them, they, they're like, shit, I was actually getting used to that. I was relying on that. And now my w- life is much worse.
3: I, I wanted to back up a second and talk about the preliminary results that um, the Finnish government released this week, which were really interesting. And it, it just looked at the first year they were doing the experiment where they were giving people about 560 euros a month. And they compared people who were getting that money and you know people who weren't. <laughs> and, um, and I guess the, the point of the experiment was to see if getting this money no strings was better than getting unemployment insurance, which you lose if you get any kind of work, basically. So the idea is to get more people working, like we discussed with Annie Lowry, and um, to just get more people working, basically. And so the preliminary results really didn't show much of a difference in terms of the number of people who were able to work because they would get the stipend. The real difference was the people who were getting this money were, um, this is so basic, guys, but they were happier. They had better well-being. They had better um, health. They had more trust in the government, which was really interesting. They had more confidence in their future. Just having the stability of the money coming in is really, um, really beneficial.
0: And what's more, it's worth noting that this was done in a kind of interesting way that they just threw darts at a map of poor people in Finland, basically. And through 2,000 dots and then 2,000 lucky people managed to get this. Com- and then they compared it to like 5,000 people who weren't hit by a dart. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that that does is it means that the people who got this were surrounded by people who weren't getting it. And, one- and so what mm-hmm. you don't measure in this trial um, is one of the things that UBI proponents really talk about quite a lot is the sort of mass effects of a universal basic income when an entire village or an entire city or an entire country is all everyone is getting the universal basic income, then that creates a social effect. And that's and that you don't see in this kind of a trial. Well,
1: also, this was not UBI in the sense that it was just targeted towards unemployed people.
0: Right. Which you, is another issue. And, you needed and it, to be poor, basically.
1: Yeah. And, and I do think, although I think there are some definitely good things that came out of this in the sense of realizing, which I think makes some intuitive sense that if you're giving people benefits or you're giving people cash, one, they have a lot more control over. So it makes sense that they would feel better about their lives because this is something that they have more control over. Now, I I sometimes push back on some of the UBI zealots when they act like, oh, well, look what happened in Kenya. We can replicate that in a very, very different country. And that's where I I kind of imagine that a shifting towards more of a UBI structure probably would have some of these these benefits we're seeing in terms of people's quality of life. Do I think they would have the real like revolutionary benefits that we're seeing in poorer well nations? Let, let's I'm be, not so let's sure. Let's be
0: clear about this. We are the results of the Kenya UBI trial are not in yet. We right. literally this is true. we literally do not know what we're seeing in Kenya because it hasn't been going on very long and the trial is happening right now, but no results have come out.
3: I mean, I think that, that makes sense. Forgive me if I butcher this, but there's an economic theory called marginal utility, right? It's like a dollar is more valuable to a poor person than it is to like Warren Buffett. So, of course, like UBI would be a miracle in some place like Kenya and like less of a miracle Although it in the depends, U.S. It Finland.
0: depends how much. Like, you know, the the... Well, but it people also... receiving money in Kenya are not receiving 500 euros a month. Right, but they don't less. need that to change their exactly. lives. But what, what we do have a little bit of evidence on from Kenya is what happens if you just drop a huge amount of money from a helicopter on top of people and just give them a single big check of like over $2,000, something like that. We know that has short-term significant positive effects, we are beginning to learn that there's a certain amount of mean reversion and those positive effects kind of dissipate a little bit over time. Um, what's interesting also, when we're just beginning to see this, is that there's interesting spillover effects into like neighboring villages. And, and... anyway, there's a the whole, we can talk about Kenya, but like the I Finland guess... question is, is a slightly different one, which is, what happens when you just take a few, a relatively small number of distributed poor people in Finland and give them an extra five hundred euros? And I think that Emily, you're right. The headline result here is it's good. They are happier. They are healthier. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. It's not necessarily getting them to work though, and I and I do think that was the initial point of the study. And while it's still very early, so it is entirely mm-hmm. possible that this could change as we move forward. I guess this is where I, I wonder if you are going to get the benefit that we have seen a little bit in poor countries where you see more business development and people. This actually does kind of spur people on in terms of job growth, which I definitely, we haven't seen that. And I, I wonder if that will actually be the case.
0: I want to jump in and just say, I am so happy that this is the frame of the discussion, that the frame of the discussion is if you give me, if you give people more money, are they more likely to work or are they not more likely to work? Because it wasn't that long ago, that If you talked about giving people money, everyone will say, well, if you give people money, they're going to be less likely to work because they'll be like, why do I need to work if I'm getting this free money? Right. And no one is saying that and no one is even dr- – like that whole hypothesis has been – has been completely rejected. At this point.
1: Right. I mean, I do think it's important just to note a little bit that in the 70s in the U.S. when we did have a, a little bit of like the kind of negative income tax, there was an effect on employment, especially was among positive. women. No, 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 no. There was a reduced. No, there was definitely was definitely negative. That was why they stopped it. Now, I don't I, I ultimately agree with you. I, I do think that more and more data we're seeing now, it suggests that if you give people money, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to reduce labor force participation. But I just want to clarify that.
3: The other thing I was going to say is in addition to the benefit of better health and happiness, there there were these other interesting results about trust in government and civic society. And I, I feel like this is a very, very positive result, considering right now we're in sort of this democratic crisis where people don't trust the government and there's populist uprisings and you know real threats to democracy it's it's interesting that this social there's a social benefit that the government could do that would make people more
0: attached and i think i think this is is true about cash transfers from the government in general is that if you realize if you're on social security or medicare or medicaid and you're you know Um, receiving substantial amounts of money from the government, you generally like those programs and you like the people who are giving them to you. And, you know, there are weird sort of take-your-government-hands-off-my-Medicare types. Mm -hmm. But, like, those those people, you know, notwithstanding, I think that you do find, you're absolutely right, that insofar as the government is performing a redistributive function and is giving money to people who need money, that makes people like government more.
1: Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say is that Scandinavia has notoriously high satisfaction with government. So I, I do wonder how much we can extrapolate there. But it's it's possible. And, and I do agree with you that I think when government programs work well, people like them. <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons I guess they're scaling back in Finland is because they already have great benefits already. Well, they,
3: free college. It was a change in government. Free health care. Yeah. They,
1: they, went from a, <laughs> they went from a more liberal to a more conservative government. I see.
3: But still, again, free college, free health <laughs> Well, it's not free. <laughs> they're paying. <laughs> yes, it's they not pay free. <laughs> taxes, but I pay a lot of taxes too, and I don't get, again, free college, <laughs> free health care. Okay. You don't have to save for it, you know? And that's and, the difference. And then, like we and then
0: free money. I'm like, I'm telling you, <laughs> free money is always a vote winner. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> Bribes.
0: Hello, I'm Emmy Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, at my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Emily. Yep. We're all on strike or for the first time in like living memory or at least since, you know, the sort of 1990s there has been a significant number of industrial actions and work stoppages and this kind of thing. The In the grand fight between labor and capital, it looks like labor is, is out marching on the warpath. What's going on?
3: Yay, labor! Um, so the number of work stoppages um, that the Department of Labor tracks almost tripled to 20 in 2018, um, mainly because of all the teacher strikes. Um, there are teacher strikes in Virginia, a bunch of places. And um, there was a strike. Marriott workers went on strike. Um, oh, the teacher strikes were in West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Kentucky and Arizona. So a lot of people went on strike. This
0: and, and it continued year. into this year in Los and it Angeles. Continue-
3: yeah, it doesn't look like it's um, stopping. L.A. just had a big strike. And West Virginia teachers um, are expected to go on strike pretty soon and um the piece we're talking about ran in bloomberg it was written by my friend janet paskin and um she also talked about sort of like unconventional things that workers did this year to get their companies to cut cut out the bullshit um like the workers at market basket protesting to get their CEO rehired or um, Starbucks employees trying to get better needle disposal mechanisms because they were tired of picking up like old heroin needles and um, Google workers going um, forcing the company to stop doing certain government contracts and forcing the company to get rid of arbitration like we've talked about. So 2018 was kind of a surprisingly good year for labor.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that obviously overall, Capital's (laughs) Capital's st- <laughs> still doing a lot better You're than Labor. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I wasn't saying that as a good thing. I was just saying that, <laughs> the fact. But I, I do think it's interesting because I've heard different kind of theories posited. And, and one is that, like, post-Trump, there's been this kind of protest culture mm-hmm. that has been created and even encouraged by some companies. And that now people are saying, OK, well, now we're going to protest these things that are actually happening at the companies, which which I think is a good thing. And I also think you can't completely divorce it from what's happening in the overall economy, that historically, when you have a better economy, workers have a little bit more power. And actually, if you look at, like, the share of national income that goes to labor, the share that goes to capital, it has been going more to capital. But when we've seen it narrow has been when the economy is doing better. There's less slack in the market.
0: So – the The headline number is seven million, which is the number of unfilled job openings in America, which has been up there. Is it, you know, it, this is an unprecedentedly enormous number of unfilled job openings, and we are back above seven million. And when there are that many open jobs, and you're a miserable public school teacher making not very much money and having to you know pay your you know buy pencils for your own kids and all of that kind of stuff, you're like. Look, you know, there really I can just quit. I can go and get a better job somewhere else and that gives you the kind of incentive to say this is really stupid. I think we should get together and we should demand better working conditions, better pay, whatever it is that we need in order to just say let's let's make sure that jobs in general are improving in line with the demand for labor.
3: Yeah. And I think also as I think there's kind of like the pendulum swung a little too far in capital's direction. And you see, you you hear about the economy being great. You hear about the unemployment rate being really low. And then you go to work and you haven't gotten a raise in, you know, 10 years or something. Your salary is barely budged. <clears throat> and your outrage is already amped up maybe because of 2016, because of the activism you're seeing there. And it's just sort of like that spark gets lit somehow. You know, um, people were ready to say stuff, something. Oh, and plus the internet.
1: Well, that was the thing that I actually thought was kind of interesting because <laughs> I feel like this was one of the first stories in a while I've heard where social media was kind of the good guy. Mm. <laughs> well, mm. That it, it was allowing people to organize actually in different ways. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the things that they pointed out in the article, that it wasn't just through traditional unions. That not to say that that's a good or a bad thing, but that people are finding many different ways to push for what they feel they deserve.
3: And especially um, in the retail space where, Mm. I mean, there's this barrier to unionizing because they're all spread out in different locations. The internet really helps retail workers kind of come together and and take action that we haven't seen before.
0: And unionization is going up as well. Mm. I mean, we are seeing, uh, this is another thing after decades and decades of long-term secular decline, there are... There is a small but noticeable uptick in 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 workforces unionizing, um, which again I think makes people happier. I think that what you have found, what I certainly experienced when I moved here in the nineties, um, is this idea that management is in charge of sort of keeping their employees happy. And they feel like they know best how to do that. And at some point, the employees go, well, actually, you don't necessarily know best how to do that. And the mechanisms that you think that you have in place for knowing what we want are not actually proving effective. And if we have some organized way of telling you what we want and what's going to make us happy, that's going to be better for both of us.
3: I thought about that um, as it relates to my to me personally, recently, because at HuffPost, I'm in a union, the reporters are in a union. And um, at BuzzFeed, until very recently, they just union- announced they were unionizing this week. They they didn't have a union. And we both experienced layoffs a few weeks ago. And at HuffPost, like, as-, as layoffs were coming and we knew it, the union <clears throat> emailed all of us and said, here's what it says in the contract. Here's what your severance is going to be. So you had that peace of mind that at least if you were going to get laid off, you knew what you were getting. At BuzzFeed, they didn't have that. They got laid off. And whereas our workers had like a two-month severance at a minimum, they had to take to social media and fight because they weren't going to get paid out their vacation days. And I think they did wind up winning that fight, but they had to wage a social media unconventional, ununionized kind of campaign to do it. So it just kind of shows.
0: And and which is itself another form of what you were just talking about, which is like, semi-formal ways of employees mm-hmm. getting together and demanding changes which don't necessarily involve a union. But yeah, and also can. to have
1: to push unions to be better. I mean, I know that was in one of the teacher strikes. They actually didn't like the agreement that the unions had come to, so they kind of went around that. And I, and I think that it's it's a good thing if you have people who are pushing unions to actually do things that are in the best interest of workers at that company and also potentially people who want to work at that company. I mean, I think it's interesting to kind of look at the way that unions work in the United States versus how they work in some other countries because we have more like Enterprise level, as opposed to the kind of secular unionization that you see in other countries. And can you explain that more? So it's basically just in other countries, it's sometimes called like the Ghent system that you have in a number of Northern European countries, where entire industries essentially have a union that represents them. And they also tend to give out actually like unemployment insurance. And so they also tend to discipline people and they work closely with the management as well. So it's, it's not as an antagonistic relationship as we have in the United States, whereas in the United States, it Although this is not 100 percent because there are some industry, but mostly it tends to be kind of company by company. And that can then put companies that aren't unionized. They're going to then potentially have an advantage over people who are unionized. So I, I just think when we think about how the the labor movement can move forward, I think it's interesting to think about how it could change and not necessarily have to be exactly what it was in the past.
3: Right. And I think that's what we're seeing and what this piece really showed. And you could see it, too, in, um, like, for example, $15 an hour minimum wage. That was really sort right.
0: of... right. That's that's a classic example of, like, a secular thing which benefits everyth- everyone mm-hmm. rather than just the existing employees of the company. And I think that, to Anna's point, you know, the unhelpful forms of unionization are the ones where... You have an existing workforce who's protecting itself, often at the expense of um, people who aren't employed at the com- mm-hmm. company, um, and that you know often winds that's, up with weird like contractor-style situations. Where I mean, you, that's actually yeah. the,
1: a lot of the history of the unions in the United States. I mean, just to be clear, like that—that that has always been an issue. That's right, and that's the and criticisms. that's an issue, and
0: that's you know, and that's how you wind up with you know the people moving the. Pianos at Carnegie Hall, making four hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, and that kind of thing. And that's not the top of the list of awesome things that unions do. But if you can use a whole bunch of different mechanisms, including increasingly uh, social media pressure, to get entire industries to start moving and and states to implement minimum wages and and bring a focus to issues that often the workforce cares much more about than management does. That's going to help improve communications between labor and management. And that's ultimately one of the main demands that virtually all workforces have, that virtually all employees have. It's like, why aren't management listening to us?
3: Um, One thing I would say, a headwind here, which Janet mentions in the piece, is the Supreme Court, which is kind of anti-labor right now. I mean, it's a conservative court. There were two rulings that went not labor's way last year, which was what made this news from the Labor Department all the more sort of surprising, I guess, or encouraging for people who were discouraged by um, the rulings last year. And um, the other thing I would say is I feel like this is part of a bigger uh, trend in the country where a lot of a lot of these things, $15 an hour, minimum wage, paid leave, stuff like that, is all getting is all extremely popular and um you know, among workers and Americans. And I feel like it's all a piece of people feeling a little bit fed up with not getting what they need to just go to work and like live their lives.
0: So I think I think we're gonna continue to talk about labor versus capital in Slate Plus. I I feel like we're gonna bring Max Jacobs in. And he is going to explain the fight between some poor underpaid workers known as baseball players <laughs> and, and their beleaguered managers who are, who are, you know, billionaires owning baseball teams. This is, this is a kind of interesting thing. We will talk about that in Slate Plus. But before we get to Slate Plus, uh, let's have a numbers round. Um, Emily, do you have a number?
3: I have a number. What's your number? My number is $450,696. That is the average household income in 2017 in Atherton, California, which is in Silicon Valley. Wow! Yeah. And it's the most expensive, uh, the richest place on Bloomberg's richest place index. Um, Sheryl Sandberg lives there and Eric Schmidt also lives there because it's close to Google and Facebook and Stanford. And um, also this week was another piece on just how wildly expensive it is to live in Silicon Valley right now and how... At first, you're like, oh, who cares if Sheryl Sandberg's property taxes go up? But it's not about, you know, it's about like the police and the teachers who have to live there, too. And it's increasingly a really unaffordable, unpleasant place to live, even though it's sunny and it's California.
0: This is, this is a perennial, perennial um, story about, about Palo Alto and the and the environs. But, yeah, it does just only ever seem to get I worse. I mean,
3: the, the, the chart that CNET, you know, made up was it was the line was just um i'm gesturing with my hands i'm sorry (laughs) but the line was just going straight up and like uh, commute times three hours worse than the nation and long commutes are very
0: distressing my number is zero there's a fascinating (laughs) new um paper that came out by ben goldacre who's the guy in england who's really big on like um reproducibility of um scientific papers and trying to make sure they conform to generally accepted scientific principles and these kind of things. And so what he did is he took some of the biggest um, and most important medicine scientific journals in the world, including the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet and others, and went through everything that they published um, and tried to work out when the studies that they published complied with consort, which is this rule of principles which basically says you say what you're going to measure before you do the trial and then you report what you said you were going to report. And like 58 of these, of these papers did not do that. They wound up either not reporting what they said they were going to report or they did report something which they didn't say they were going to report or something like that. Very, very bad, like, scientific method. And every single time he, they did something like that, he would write them a letter and say, um, excuse me, but you say that you have signed up to this statement of principles and you clearly haven't. Um, then what he did, because this is an actual scientific thing, he did that 58 times and he measured, like, what was the response? And the Lancet actually turned out to be pretty good. They published most of the letters that he sent them. The New England Journal of Medicine published zero of the letters and just refused to engage and would like send him like weird, rude, nasty grams and say, go away, you gnat.
3: And they're the most prestigious medical journal, right?
0: They're pretty damn prestigious. Yeah. Hmm. So and, and what happens is in public, they will say, oh, yes, we completely sign up to consort and it's very important to us. But in Fact: When they are called out on, like, well, if you say that you sign up to this, you know, you, you, I, clearly you've just published a paper that doesn't comply, they get super defensive.
3: And the reason you don't do consort is because you don't want to have a boring study, right? You want to be able to say something cool happened. You don't want to. You don't want to have to say like, we looked for this and it wasn't yes. there,
0: right? or, you, or people do say that people publish, publish those papers the whole time it's just that they never get published in the New England journal, right. journal yeah of they Medicine. want to
3: publish things that are like we've we found that if you eat six cookies you um well I mean
0: you yeah, know those papers you often find <laughs> on you know in like weird places uh-huh. but the fact is ultimately any jm and places like that just don't publish negative papers results. It's just they're not interesting. Scientists aren't that interested in negative results. And scientists also, they want to discover something. What they don't want to do is try and replicate something which someone's already done. And then they're like, oh, we didn't manage to replicate it. That's a really important but kind of very unsexy part of science that the prestigious journals just aren't interested in it's so
3: relatable as like a as a journalist i so relate to this right because like you don't want to do something someone else already did and you don't want to write a story about like something incredibly boring right
1: but then i think the unfortunate (laughs) result is that you end up within these studies and people citing studies and then it turns out you can't replicate any of this stuff so it wasn't a real thing to begin
0: with exactly and 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 the journalism has its own version of this which is you get like some unbelievably flawed and stupid study saying if you eat six cookies then you'll live forever. And That's they will send study. out they will send out a press release to a thousand journalists and nine hundred of those journalists take one look at it and go, this is complete garbage, and throw it in the bin. But 100 of the journalists are like, oh, this is cheap, free content, and then just like copy and paste and, do, and put some like clickbait um, headline on it. And then that's the only place that the study is reported. And the only place that the study is reported is the place which is credulous and doesn't say that it's complete bullshit. It's, it's, it's bad in journalism. It's bad in scientific journals. It's bad everywhere.
1: So my number is eighteen eighty eight.
0: Ooh. Is that a year? It
1: is a year. So at this rally, I don't talk about Donald Trump that often, but I was like, there was a rally and he was he Was, was this like,
0: one in El Paso? I think
1: so. And he was basically saying, you know, journalists out there, I want you to look at the tariff battle of 1888 because the economy was booming and we had tariffs. Look it up. Okay.
0: So just to be clear... <laughs> Go ask he, He's a historian about it. Yes, him. he is.
1: Yeah. So... Yes, it is true that this was a period of time where we actually had a tremendous amount of debt from the Civil War. And so as one of the ways in order to pay that off and for also to protect domestic um, producers, there were tariffs. Now, there was a debate about how to reduce the government surplus, but the idea that the tariffs themselves were in some ways closely correlated with the economic growth just makes absolutely no sense. Because if you look at what was happening at the time, you had – this is the time of rapid expansion of the United States post-war. This is when all of these kind of developments you'd had – kind of pre-war, were really coming to fruition. Also, most importantly, which I've clearly he didn't mention, it was a time when you had tremendous amounts of immigration coming to the United States.
0: And also... It, was it wasn't t- the terrorist Donald Trump. It was the immigration. If yes. you really want to grow the economy, you should open the borders.
1: Exactly. And <laughs> and, and it was also because, yes, because we were producing... a Because... Overall, trade was booming because we were producing a lot that we were sending raw goods to the to the kind of industrializing Europe. So, point of this is that, not surprisingly, he's wrong. But <laughs>
3: <laughs> that was like the one thing I didn't see fact checked in his um, in from his speech. So, I think you've just done an immense
0: public that, service. That, thank you, Anna, thank for you. for breaking the news that Donald <laughs> Trump might have got something wrong in one of his speeches. Um, So I think that's it for the main part of the show. We are going to continue on, if you are a Slate Plus member, by talking to our resident baseball expert, Max Jacobs, about sports ball. He is going to explain things to me, which I I am very openly happy to admit (laughs) I know know absolutely nothing about. Um, And do not be alarmed. If you see another episode of Slate Money on Tuesday, I know that Slate Money comes out on Saturdays, but there's going to be something, a little treat for you on Tuesday. We have a thing called Slate Money Travel, which we're trying out, and I think you might enjoy because it will be someone you remember. Um, so in any case, keep the emails coming, at slate.com. Many thanks to Max for not only knowing about baseball but also producing his entire show. And we... We'll talk to you next week on Sleep Money.